We're closing it out by looking at Psalm 65. And in this one, it kind of gives us a different picture than previous ones. In the previous few Psalms that we've looked at, there's actually been a lot of points of application directly to our lives. And in this Psalm, there's not much. But it's still about, it's about God. So we get to see that. So if you're willing and able, could you please stand as I read God's Word for us? From Psalm 65, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have been told, I have been told that by my wife that men have selective hearing. I'm not entirely sure that was right. I'm not sure that I heard her correctly. <laughs> um, to be fair, we all have selective hearing, right? We hear what we want when we want. Um, I find it the funniest in children, though. And it's, in many ways, the most... <laughs> one of the things that gets you riled up so easily as a parent very rarely do children exist who respond appropriately the first time to what you've said, right? Uh, did, for instance, like, didn't you hear me tell you to straighten your room? No. And I really believe in that response, they probably didn't hear because they're into whatever they into whatever, whatever they're into. Or didn't you hear me tell you? you're not allowed to play any more Xbox today. 
No? You know, and it's kind of the look of, huh. So I've devised a strategy that I've used a few times to overcome selective hearing in my children. If I want them to do a chore or really just kind of get their attention, instead of just yelling upstairs, I'm not going to yell because I might. Instead of yelling upstairs, Lucy, Eli, come down. I just try to think of what's going to get them downstairs, right? And I just yell, cookies! And then they just come running. Because a child's ear, it's almost as if, if you say chores or do this, there's a little, little, there's a tiny blockage that it can't get through the brain, but words like cookies go in, and words like ice cream go in, and all of their favorite things like Star Wars or video games, they hear all that, right? So it's, we can see it very clearly in children. We see it in ourselves as well. I mean, it's a very common thing you see in a marriage. Uh, but I'm sorry, baby, what, what was that that you said? So a lot of times we hear, but we don't listen, Right? What we're going to see in today's psalm is that God does not have selective hearing. He does not have selective hearing. And we're looking at this psalm in three parts, okay? The first part in verses 1 through 4 is God hears. And then the next part in verses 5 through 8 is God answers. And then the last part in 9 through 13 is God visits. So first, God hears. God answers and God visits. So it states in verse 2, verse 2 says, it opens up, O you who hear prayer. This is actually pretty astounding. The word, the Hebrew word for hear, hear, is the Hebrew word for Shema. And this is a very, in, very important word in the Hebrew world because they were at the time, and actually even to this day, the people of Israel, the Jews, they would sing the Shema. Have any, have any of you ever heard this? The Shema. It's, if I can sing in front of you. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is the big Shema that they would sing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that is the word used here for, O you who hear prayer. Now, that word doesn't mean just merely hear, like have noise go in. It means listen, like actually listen, or even listen with the intent to obey. Could you imagine how the Shema would be different if it was here, O Israel, that is just kind of let the noise rattle around, but not really pay attention to what's being said? So it's, the word here here means deep listening, even listening with the intent to obey. Now, of course, God doesn't obey us. That would be improper, but he hears and he listens to us so closely that he perfectly understands the desire of our prayers. If you're like me, 
There are times when I pray that I go, is he even listening? Is he even listening? And we have a great comfort here in verse 2. When David, the psalmist, he says, confidently, O you who hear prayer. So he hears. And after acknowledging that God actually hears us, the psalmist then turns to what is his biggest problem in verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. O you who hear prayer, now let me take to you my biggest problem. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgression. The picture here is the psalmist, David, his iniquities, his sins are winning and he is losing. That they are overcoming him and he needs help. And so he cries out. So he's losing. What is God's response? What is God's response? And even imagine yourself in that situation. Hey, God, look, I'm in this situation, and my sin is winning. It is prevailing against me, and I'm losing out here. What is his response? I can tell you what it's not. It's not, well, you need to try harder. It's not, well, you should have more and better quiet times. It's not, well, you should serve in church more. You and I, that's the way we think a lot of times. My iniquities are prevailing against me. And we pretend that we hear the voice of God saying, try harder, do more. What does he say? I attend. I atone. He atones for transgressions. What does it mean to atone? Uh, atonement, you know, many preachers have said over the years, um, we can think about it in terms of at one. You have two parties that are against each other, and atonement brings them to one, at one. Here's what atonement means. It means I am unlovely, but Jesus loved me. It means I should have been the one on the cross, but Jesus took my place. Atonement means I'm the one who should have been cursed, but Jesus took my curse. It means I, a sinner, should have forever been cast off from God, but Jesus bought me with his own precious blood to make me not only a friend of God, but his very son and his very daughter. That's what atonement means. And so if we go back, if you look at verse 3, look at it carefully. Who is the one who atones? It's God. The verse doesn't say, when iniquities prevail against me, I go make atonement for my transgressions. It says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone. God atones for our transgressions. We sing a song here at Trinity that has this verse, not the labors 
of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So all of your tears, all of your zeal, all of your good works, everything you ever have done is not enough to atone before God. Because you're still saying with sin, and Jesus took your place on the cross. That's one of the, I mean, one of the beautiful aspects of the gospel. And notice, too, a very interesting thing, I think, here in verse 3. Look at how the language switches. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Not singular there, but plural. So Jesus' death atoned for the sins of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Like when you guys get together in community groups to study together, to hang out, to pray together, you're actually getting together with people who have been atoned for. And Jesus wasn't merely interested in atoning just for individuals, but atoned for a people, his, his people, that he could call them to himself. So the very first part of this psalm, we, we see that God hears. He actually hears. And then we move on and see God answers. God answers. Verse 5, look at it with me. Verse 5 opens with, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Okay, what are these awesome deeds that he answers with? If we were to do kind of a cursory look, like verse 6 says, by his strength he established the mountains. Verse 7 says, uh, he stills the roaring of the seas. Verse 8, he makes the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Okay, that's kind of a cursory look. But what are those things for? What are those things for? This one sentence that makes up verses 5 through 8 ends with verse 8 saying this. It says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. So what the scripture here is trying to say is that the mountains, the seas, the morning, the evening, these things are God's evangelism to the ends of the earth. These things exist to show the world that there is a God who has made this amazing stuff. And that this God can provide even more than what the eye sees. So how does God answer? How does God answer? It says, by his awesome deeds, which are not merely by establishing the mountains or calming the seas, but by atoning for sin and using creation as a clarion call to the nations that they too can know God and like the psalm says, accept their hope in the same way that God's people do. God answers. He hears, he answers, and three, he visits. Look closely with me at verse 9. It does not say, you visit the earth by watering it. Here's what the text says. You visit the earth and water it. What's the difference? It's not rain visiting the earth. 
It's God himself. Verses 9 through 13, you have a beautiful picture about all these things, but it's not about God providing rain or growing grain or meadows or valleys. This last section, verses 9 through 13, is about this. Answering this question, what happens when God shows up? Or to put it another way, and this is, really should have been the title of the sermon, what happens when God comes for a visit? What happens when God comes for a visit? Well, what's the answer to that? When God comes for a visit, everything that everything does what it's made to do, and it's beautiful. Kind of the description of this. For us, a hill is just a hill. When God comes for a visit, it girds itself with joy. Wagon tracks, wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The meadows clothe themselves with, with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain, and everything and everyone shouts and sings for joy. This isn't about agriculture, friends. To the few of us who are even in the agriculture industry, the end of this psalm is saying, what happens on earth when God shows up for a visit? And it's the answer is all things beautiful. The world works the way that it should. And you and I find our happy home there. So where does this psalm leave us? Where does the psalm leave us in closing? You know, fortunately for us, God is, is the opposite of a selective hearer. Right? He is not up in heaven, just waiting for us to kind of get our acts together, to loft up a prayer that is finally good enough that he's going to answer, or maybe if, if things are going really poorly, uh, he might show up for a visit. Friends, that's not the case. God is a God who hears. He heard the prayers of David, and he hears you when you pray. God is a God who answers. He answered David's and our need for atonement. And then God is a God, and this is the most important of it all, God is a God who visits. God's answer to our problem of sin and death wasn't to just zap it from heaven. Could God have done that? I think very possibly. But that wasn't his answer, to strike some mighty blow of power against sin and death, but to visit in the incarnation of his beloved son. And what happens when God really comes for a visit? The eternal son becomes incarnate. He becomes exactly like you and like me. And he dies to defeat sin and he rises to defeat death. When God comes for a visit, the world is turned upside down. And Christian, our God who visits 
has taken up residence in you. Permanent residence in you by His Spirit. And He is on a divine quest to take your ashes and turn them into something beautiful. Friends, we have a God who shows up. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not satisfied to stay in heaven. You thought it absolutely necessary to send the Son to become like us. What happens when you come for a visit? We are saved. That's what happens. We praise you for that. Father, press that on our hearts as we continue to worship. Through Jesus, amen.